Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Hurram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode and also Ramadan Mubarak to everyone. We are again in the blessed month of Ramadan. Uh, at least here, uh, we are just beginning the first fast as I'm recording this at least. Um, and I assume that Ramadan has begun in every part of the world or at least it should have by the time that this episode uh, comes out. Uh, in addition, I also wanted to apologize for not releasing an episode on Friday. I was unfortunately sick earlier in this week. Yes, it was bad. Um, it wasn't like COVID or anything. I was just sick, normal sickness, uh, normal flu. So I was just sick and, and I wasn't able to, to finish up the episode and, and get it out. So unfortunately, uh, you know, this episode was delayed, but hopefully again, uh, it's still uh, is released on uh, at least at least a reasonable time, about two days late, but, you know, it happens. What can you do? Uh, regardless, again, you know, I hope everyone is uh, having a good Ramadan so far. Uh, it's exciting, I guess, because of the fact that, at least here in Canada, there's uh, a lot less restrictions. Uh, and inshallah, it, you know, it, it stays that way because Ramadan, I guess, maybe feels more normal right now. Uh, at least based on, you know, the restrictions that we have here than it has in the, the past two years. And, of course, at the end of it, inshallah, Eid also uh, is able to be uh, celebrated and practiced normally rather than sort of, you know, the, the half Eids that we had uh, in the uh, last two uh, Ramadan and Eids. And, you know, hopefully, again, you know, wherever you guys live as well, wherever you are listening to this from, that you are able to have a normal Ramadan and a normal Eid as well, because, uh, you know, yeah, it, it has felt weird. I don't think anyone would deny that about not celebrating Eid in a normal way, right? So hopefully we do, inshallah, get that opportunity to do that. But besides that, today's episode is going to be on a man that I have always been very, uh, you know, I've, I've always admired because of not only his contributions to the Muslim uh, Ummah, but also to his contributions to the knowledge of Islam itself and the increase of Muslim knowledge. And today's episode, I will be doing a past and present heroes episode on Imam al-Bukhari. Uh, and so first, let me just explain. Uh, the past and present heroes episode is things that I've done before as well. I, I did two previous episodes on Salahuddin and uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, so please do go check them out. Uh, I thought I did, at least I think I did, at least a, a decent job of covering their life as well as some of the main points that I thought in, was interesting to understand about who they were as people. And that's also something that, uh, you know, I, I will be doing in today's episode. I won't be going through every single detail about Al-Bukhari's life, uh, but I will be trying to sort of dissect some things that I thought were very interesting. And my source, or my main source, for this episode will be a lecture by Umar Suleiman on Al-Bukhari. And his lecture is much more detailed than mine. It's a two-hour lecture. I will link it in the episode description. And I encourage you that when you have time, do listen to it, because it's a very interesting lecture, and he really does go into a lot more detail than I will, uh, and he does go into maybe some of the more uh, specific parts about his life. But I myself, of course, because I don't have the time to make a two-hour episode, uh, but I will be going over the things that I found were interesting, and, and things that I really think we should reflect on when we are thinking about Al-Bukhari. And really, that is kind of the point of these past and present heroes episodes. It's because, you know, I think that there's a lot of Muslim heroes that are not even heroes, you know, influential Muslims who have impacted the way that we live our lives or have done things that have really helped us uh, grow as Muslims, you know, things that we don't necessarily realize. And, you know, Al-Bukhari is one of those people who I think doesn't necessarily get the credit that he kind of deserves. And, and I'll get into this later as well, but that's really what I hope to get into with these past and present heroes episodes, is for us as Muslims to be better linked with the people who have come before us and the people who are here now that are making the lives of Muslims better. And ultimately, the reason that I wanted to do an episode on al-Bukhari is because we've really... We all know Al-Bukhari, right? Like, we all know him. We all know who he is. We know what he's about. We know everything, you know, Sahih Al-Bukhari. Everyone, you know, knows a, a Al-Bukhari Hadith. 
But I really wanted to get into what made this man who he was. You know, what was his background? And really, where did he come from? And I think that that's almost as interesting as learning about some of the hadiths that he has narrated or even learning from some of his books. Because I think that when you get a context of where he's from, what he went through to get to where he was or where he is now, you really do, I feel, in my opinion at least, have a much more appreciation for what you're learning from his books, especially from Sahih al-Bukhari. Now, as his name suggests, he was in fact from the city of Bukhara, which is in modern-day Uzbekistan, which is in the Central Asia Peninsula or Central Asia area, I should say. And his city, the city of Bukhara, was known as the city of merchants because it was central to the Silk Road and was a major component in the trade. And so the Silk Road, for those of you who don't know, was major trade roads between areas like China, India, Persia, and the Middle East, and eventually to Europe as well. And so Bukhara was a central component of that because its routes were essential when traveling from China to the West. And so a lot of traders, a lot of merchants would go through that area. Islam would eventually arrive in the city of Bukhara by the year 650 AD. And so it arrives quite early in the spread of Islam. And Islam grows there very slowly. Originally, the city is a centerpiece for paganism. There's a lot of pagans and you know non-Muslims that lived in Bukhara, but eventually through Dawah and whatnot, Islam starts to grow in the city and little by little more mosques are built and a lot more scholars also become, you know, homegrown talent from Bukhara. Bukhara at one point has many scholars that arise from it and, you know, go to the other parts of the Muslim world to make a name for themselves. One prominent name from the city of Bukhara is Ibn Sina. He was born in Bukhara or an area around Bukhara and eventually, of course, uh, you know, travels to the other parts of, of the Muslim world and, you know, makes a name for himself. But regardless of those people, right, as many of the great imams and, you know, well-known figures there are, there is only one al-Bukhari. There's no two al-Bukharis. There's only one al-Bukhari. And that in itself is a testament, again, to Imam al-Bukhari's legacy, is that he himself took a name of a city. He represents the city everywhere he went. And, and, and it's something that I think really gives uh, more of a, a special meaning to what he was to that city as well. And, you know, his importance to that city's history. Al-Bukhari's family as well were pagans themselves. In fact, his uh, ancestors before him were uh, Zoroastrians. I don't know if you guys know what Zoroastrianism is. But it's a religion that was very common in parts of Iran and, you know, the Persian and Farsi-speaking world. And so his grandfather is actually the first person in his family who converted to Islam. And he would convert in the city of Bukhara, uh, where his family was, had been located for many years. His father and his mother were also very pious. And they had a good amount of Islamic knowledge and Hadith knowledge amongst them. And he also actually has a brother who's also pious. So I, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that basically everyone in his life, his grandfather, his mother, his father, his brother, all of them were all very pious. They were all very, you know, uh, they, were, they were very well known in Islamic knowledge and they knew a lot of hadiths as well. And, and they were very much connected uh, to, uh, you know, the Islamic faith as well. And, and I think that this is really important because he grows up in that environment, right? He grows up in a very pious and Islamic environment. And I'm sure as anyone who has kids or anyone who's ever, you know, heard about this, but growing up in an Islamic environment is very important, right? Like growing up here in Canada, uh, I guess one beneficial thing is that there is a large Muslim community within Canada, where, you know, you can, even as a Muslim, even though you're in Canada or in, you know, the U.S. or wherever, you're still able to build off of knowing that there's other Muslims around you and that Islamic, I guess, community it really does grow. Unfortunately, though, for al-Bukhari, one of the parts of his community, his father, he wouldn't actually get to meet because his father actually dies 
very early in the life of Al-Bukhari. In fact, there's some stories that say that the day that Al-Bukhari was born was basically the day that his father passes away. So unfortunately for Al-Bukhari, he never actually meets his father. It's it's kind of sad to think about that, but uh, it is an unfortunate truth about his life. He, he doesn't know who his father was, although I'm sure he heard many great things about his father because his father was actually a well-known scholar as well. At least in the area of Bukhara, he was a well-known scholar. I don't think he was known outside of Bukhara, but he did, in fact, uh, learn from many other great imams of that time as well. And so it is somewhat sad to think that Al-Bukhari does grow up without a father, but he does, of course, still have his mother and his brother. In addition, unfortunately, and this is another unfortunate thing about his early life, he actually is, when he's born, he originally has eyesight, but it was very weak eyesight. He doesn't have very strong eyesight. So it was very, very weak for a young boy, and then eventually... As he starts to grow up, he eventually does actually go blind. And so he unfortunately loses his entire eyesight at a very young age and is unable to see anything at all. So in, in you know, instead, because he couldn't see anything, when he was learning, you know, Islamic knowledge or the Quran from his mother, he had to memorize everything, right, verbally, because that's obviously how someone who's blind has to learn stuff from the Quran or the Hadith. And so in the process of having to memorize everything, he drastically improves his ability to remember things, which is going to be very important later on. But he, he eventually becomes able to memorize things very easily because of how many things he's had to memorize because he was blind. And, and his mother, of course, and you, and you got to take into context his mother, and this is uh, an, an impactful part about Al-Bukhari's story. His mother, who is single, Right? The, the father's gone, the grandfather is gone as well. You know, his, his mother is by herself, raising two kids on her own, and one of the kids is blind. So you can imagine the amount of stress or sort of the feelings that this woman must have been going through, especially uh, you know, all, doing this all basically by herself. And, and Al-Bukhari does have extended family in the city of Bukhara, but at the end of the day, it's the mother's responsibility, of course, to take care of her own children. But even beyond this, even beyond everything that she may have been facing, the story goes that Al-Bukhari's mother was very, very pious, and she never abandoned her devotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know, she would constantly, constantly make du'as to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the night and the day to praying for uh, Al-Bukhari's eyesight to be cured. She would constantly make prayer and prayer and constantly pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for, you know, help and for guidance. And it really, again, is a testament to the, you know, the mother that she was. She loved her children deeply and she was not ready to, you know, take in the, the gloom and doom that some people might think in this situation where they might feel abandoned. She didn't. She, you know, she didn't feel abandoned. She didn't turn away. She constantly went back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And eventually, eventually, her prayers would be answered in a most particular, amazing, and sort of breathtaking, and just sort of signifies uh, the importance that Al-Bukhari really is and was. And so the story goes that, you know, one night she's going to sleep, and, and as she's sleeping, she sees Ibrahim salam in her dream. And in this dream, he tells her that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard her du'as and that he has, uh, you know, he has allowed Al-Bukhari to uh, get his eyesight restored, right? So you can sort of imagine, uh, you know, the, the kind of amazement this is. You know, she's going to sleep and she's, she sees Ibrahim salam not only telling her that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has listened and answered her du'as, but that her son, her young son, will now have his eyesight restored. You know, it must have been an amazing moment. I can only imagine, you know, and, and it's almost maybe a bit jealousy on my part to think about what that would be like to get a prophet, uh, not only not only just a prophet, but Ibrahim salam of all people, to come in your dream to tell you something like that. So, of course, the first thing she does when she wakes up, she goes and does what? Of course, she checks on Al-Bukhari, and lo and behold, and again, this is a, a miracle of, of sorts, but she sees that his eyesight was not only restored, 
but it was better than what it was before. So not only does Al-Bukhari get his eyesight back, but it's much better than what it was before when it was weak. He gets much better eyesight. And on top of this, like I mentioned before, when he was blind, he had to memorize everything. So now not only does he have great eyesight, but he also has great memory because of all those things that he memorized when he was younger. It's, it's amazing, right? In, in, in a part where he doesn't have his eyesight, where you think that that's a negative, it instead becomes a positive. And not only that, it becomes an additional positive because he now is amazing at, memorized, at memorizing things. Which, as you can imagine, as a scholar of Hadith, that definitely comes in handy, doesn't it? Being able to memorize things much easier than others. It's almost, it's so perfect for him, right? And that's, again, part of the miracle that comes because of him losing his eyesight, that he's able to regain it and gain so much in the process. Eventually, many years later, him and his family would actually go on Hajj. And he was around 16 when they would go on Hajj. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he would go through uh, the Hajj with his uh, mother and, and his brother, uh, and he actually recounts in, in, his, in his own sort of uh, stories that his family almost died multiple times while on Hajj, right? And, and again, this is something about, uh, you know, something we don't understand because for us, Hajj is just, well, you book your airplane ticket, you fly to, you know, Mecca, Medina or wherever, and then you travel to Mecca and Medina and then you do Hajj, right? Like that's, that's Hajj now. But Hajj for them was, of course, much, much more different. Hajj was a tumultuous journey that people would spend their entire life savings on, right? It would take almost a lifetime for some people to save the money to go on Hajj. And that's where it's almost amazing to, to really think about because it, it really puts into perspective just how much, uh, you know, how different our lives are than from the Muslims that came before us. And just to put it into further perspective, I, I actually did uh, a little search on, on Google Maps because I wanted to see exactly, you know, how far uh, Bukhara was from Mecca. And based on a direct route, meaning that if you took, you know, if you went directly from Bukhara to Mecca, Mecca is approximately 4,121 kilometers away from the city of Bukhara. That is a long, long journey. And, and I guess an alternative would be to maybe if you went down south and then took the sea to, you know, the, the southern part of Arabia and then traveled to Mecca. But I, I doubt that that would be, you know, much shorter of a journey. It might be a much harder journey to take as well. But regardless, you know, the, the 4,000 kilometers or just the travel it must have been, uh, I mean, it's a remarkable journey to go on, right? Like it's, it's astonishing to think. And, and, and this is, you know, not just related to Al-Bukhari, but to the Muslims in general. Like, it's astonishing to think that, you know, Muslims would just drop everything they had their entire lives and travel by foot to Mecca and Medina. Or, or you know, they would travel by road to Mecca or Medina. And it happened every single year. People would do this. It's amazing to think about. And really, it's something to to just, I guess, be in awe of about, you know, the dedication that the Muslims that came before us had to get to here. Because how many of us would be willing to do that, right? Let's be honest, right? Like, even for Hajj, right? People have hesitancies. They don't want to go or, you know, they want to delay or they want to go later in their lives. But these people had to drop everything. They had to save their entire life just to make it to Hajj. And eventually his family does, you know, reach Mecca and Medina. And, you know, as he's in Mecca and Medina, you know, he himself is, you know, a young scholar. He's trying to learn about more about Islam. And he apparently just falls in love with Mecca and Medina. You know, he, he falls in love with the city because there's all the great scholars from, you know, the Muslim world. Many of them lived in Mecca and Medina, and many of them would visit, of course, Mecca and Medina. And so for him, this was, you know, this was perfect. This was the exact type of place that he wanted to be. And so as, as you know, they eventually had to leave, he actually asks his mother if he could stay and learn from the people in the city. And his mother, you know, grants his wish, and she allows him to stay within Mecca and Medina. And so 
he actually, you know, stays there for basically, uh, you know, the next few years while his mother and his brother head back to Bukhara. And then while in Mecca and Medina, he actually writes his first two books by the age of 18. 18. He was 18 years old when he wrote his first two books. That's amazing to think about. Like, he was, by all accounts, a prodigy. And for those of you who don't know what a prodigy is, a prodigy is basically, you know, a, a younger person or, a you know, a, a youth that is, uh, you know, uh, achieving things that are beyond, uh, you know, his uh, level of, you know, achievements. So, you know, he's doing things that maybe adults or 30-year-olds or, 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 you know, older people would be able to do or, or, you know, he's doing things that would take other people, you know, generations to accomplish. He's doing it in, in you know, a matter of, of years. And, and that's who Al-Bukhari was. You know, by all accounts, he was a, a prodigy. He was a, a phenomenal genius in Islam. He just knew things and he understood how to interpret things. And he was, you know, he was uh, even amongst, uh, you know, the scholars of Makkah and Medina, even at the age of 18, he was one of the best scholars uh, in the area. And he was seen, obviously, as one of the best scholars uh, within, you know, uh, the youth uh, as well. And, and it's also interesting, and I think that this is something where maybe people don't realize, uh, you know, the, the years that some of the great imams lived, but he actually lived uh, during uh, the time of Imam Ahmed as well, right? Like Imam Ahmed was much older, uh, but he does actually live around that time as well. And there's a few instances where him and Imam Ahmed actually communicate. And, and I think that's so interesting, isn't it? Like, Sometimes we learn about some of the imams like Imam Ahmed or Imam al-Bukhari or, you know, uh, you know even uh, Imam Shafi, for example. And, and people don't realize that these people actually lived during the same time and they interacted sometimes as well. And I think that's interesting because, uh, you know, we kind of learn about history in sort of like individual sets, right? Where people learn about a person like as if they were an individual and that was it. But really, you know, it was more to that. There was a great Muslim community that existed, you know, amongst these imams. They loved to communicate and, you know, work with each other. And, and in fact, one of uh, Imam al-Bukhari's uh, famous students is actually Imam Muslim. Imam Muslim actually learns from Imam al-Bukhari. And so you can kind of see there's this very interesting, you know, chain, right? Like there's this chain of, you know, this imam knew this imam, this imam worked with that imam, you know, these imams work together, and I think it's very interesting, you know, that sort of, uh, uh, I guess, harmony or that sort of a connection uh, between the different imams and, you know, their their willingness to really work together and their willingness to do whatever it took to ensure that, you know, the knowledge of Islam, the knowledge, the proper knowledge of Islam, you know, was upheld. Now, of course, the most famous book that Imam al-Bukhari would write is, of course, the collection of hadiths known as Sahih al-Bukhari. And I'm sure many of us have been, you know, able to read parts of it or at least know hadiths that came from it because I, I think, I mean, it, it is essentially the most trustworthy and most verifiable hadith book uh, that's ever existed. And it has definitely had an amazing impact on, you know, the lives of so many Muslims throughout so many generations. But I think it's also interesting to know what its backstory was, because this is something where maybe we, again, uh, as you know, modern Muslims, we take it for granted for what uh, Sahih al-Bukhari really is. And you know, this is where we have to go back in time, and we have to go back to the time of Imam al-Bukhari. And, and at this time, hadith knowledge was well known. There was many hadith scholars throughout the Muslim world. The only problem was, was that they were spread out across much of the world. And since it was so difficult to travel, it made it much more difficult for people to actually learn some of the hadiths that were known to other parts of the community. And so, of course, one way to get around this was to have an imam uh, that would know hadiths as well. And so that imam could then recite to you the hadiths that people knew or, you know, the hadiths that uh, were important for certain situations. However, this was also still problematic because it relied on the imam, uh, you know, being uh, up to date on all hadiths or the imam himself, 
being able to communicate with other imams so that they could, you know, pass on and learn hadiths as well, right? So it would be much more difficult to do that because not everyone had access to, you know, the great imams of the time and not everyone had access to imams that might have been as knowledgeable as others. And uh, another problem became that there were some hadiths that were being spread that were not as trustworthy. They were not, not necessarily... They weren't necessarily a lie. I'm not. I don't want to say that, uh, but they weren't necessarily trustworthy. And so there were some questionable, you know, I guess things behind some of these hadiths. And so through that, that is where you know the book Sahih al Bukhari comes in, uh, because what the book Sahih al Bukhari is is trying to uh, accomplish was basically ensure that people could have one reliable source where they would be able to read and understand hadiths, and they would be able to be informed about the hadiths that were verified and the hadiths that were not verified. And so you can imagine just the, you know, the, monument- the monumentous goal that this was, right? Like this is a substantial goal that he is, he's pushing to accomplish. And it's not something that can be easily done uh, you know, even today, you know, collecting all the hadiths, organizing them properly, verifying them, it, it would take quite some time. And it, it basically did. It took up most of his life. It took up a lot of his life just writing Sahih al-Bukhari. But it, it is such an important part of, you know, the legacy of Muslim knowledge because it's such a verifiable source. And so he starts actually writing the book at the age of 21, so he's very young and, you know, he, he very much, uh, you know, is, is a, a very, uh, I guess, uh, you know, young scholar at this point, although, again, still very knowledgeable for his age. He begins writing it at 21 and finishes the book at the age of 46. It takes him a total of 25 years to finish the book. And to ensure as well, not, not just to finish the book also, I should, I should specify, he didn't just finish writing the book and collecting all the hadiths. But then he also had to, of course, verify the hadiths, right? He had to verify that these hadiths were trustworthy. And then he also, after verifying and writing the hadiths down, he then sent copies of the book to other imams, like Imam Ahmed, for example, so that they could verify and re and you know write uh, anything that was maybe uh, you know wrong or things that they disagreed with. So he had to also get it verified by other imams, and then also had to write out and verify the hadiths himself. And so in that process, as you can imagine, it took a while, and it took him twenty five years just to write it and finish it, and eventually then of course publish uh, the hadith uh, book, and. Regardless of, you know, amount of time it took, there's no doubt that it is, it is such a beneficial book. And, and it's amazing to think about, you know, the 25 years. Like imagine dedicating your life, 25 years. How many of us would be willing to dedicate ourselves to something like that? 25 years it took him just to get one book written. He was that dedicated. He never gave up. You know, there was actually moments where he would stop writing it for a while. And, and it was an interesting part that was actually shared by Imam Umar, Umar Sulaiman, uh, where he, he talked about uh, that in random parts of you know, Sahih al-Bukhari, whenever al-Bukhari would begin writing the book, he would begin by saying, Bismillah. That's how he would begin, right? He, he would actually first do you know, some uh, prayer before uh, starting to write the book. And then he would say, Bismillah, write it down, and then start writing the book. And so that's why in, in random parts of Al-Bukhari, or Sahih Al-Bukhari, I should say, it, it'll say Bismillah, because that represents a part where he began writing the book again. Because there were moments throughout the 25 years where he, where he would actually stop writing the book. He would go to try to learn more hadiths or, or whatever, take a break, and then he'd go back to writing it. It's amazing to really think about just how much time it took him, right? And how, just how dedicated he was. Nothing got in his way. This was a thing that he said, I will accomplish. And, and, you know, Alhamdulillah, you know, he goes through all that and he accomplishes it after all. I mean, can you imagine how rewarding of a feeling it must have meant, it meant to him as well? 25 years and he finally, finally finishes this. I, I can only imagine, you know, I, I myself, I'll be honest, I've never spent 25 years, 
to accomplish anything. Uh, and I just think it's amazing to think about how dedicated he was to make sure that the Muslim community had a verifiable source of hadiths. Because that's what he did. That's what he accomplished. That's how dedicated he was to that. And I think that it's also important to point out that part of the reason why he was so dedicated, and maybe part of the reason why it took him 25 years, was that Imam al-Bukhari was described by many people as a perfectionist. Everything had to be perfect. He was a perfectionist down to the very you know, last detail. Everything had to be perfect for him. He did not like the idea of something not being perfect. And so whenever he tried to do everything, he tried to do it in the most excellent manner. And, and that's part of you know, his story uh, of what uh, you know, he was. But he wasn't just a, an imam who would write hadiths or you know, uh, learn Islamic knowledge. He actually had quite a few hobbies. For example, many of his you know, companions or, or his friends mentioned that he took part in many activities, which included things like archery, horseback riding, and swimming. He, he would do many things, you know, many of the sports that were common during that time. Uh, and archery, for example, he did because it was apparently, it is sunnah. So he actually would do it purposely and he would try to do his best at it. Uh, because it was sunnah, and apparently, apparently, in, in the lecture, Umar Sulaiman actually mentions this, but many of Imam al-Bukhari's companions mentioned that he was an amazing archer. Apparently, he was, you know, he would always hit the bullseye or get very close to it, and that he would, you know, be able to do things that they were like, wow, like, the, he is an amazing archer for his time. And, and I think that's kind of interesting to think about, isn't it? Like, I guess... We always are told about the stories of the imams as if all they did was, you know, sit in front of the Quran and read it nonstop. And, you know, they didn't live a life and all they would do is, you know, write hadiths or read about hadiths. When, when really, you know, a lot of them were, and, and this may sound crazy to say this out loud, but they were pretty normal people, weren't they? Like they were normal human beings. <laughs> they were normal human beings who enjoyed things just like the rest of us. And I think that that's part of the legacy that we have to remember when we're learning about people like Imam al-Bukhari because he was a guy who enjoyed things like archery. He enjoyed horseback riding. He enjoyed swimming, right? He was someone who enjoyed these things because they were common at that time. And, you know, at the same time that he was an amazing archer, he was also an amazing scholar as well. It just amplifies, in my opinion, just the amazingness, the, the you know, the awesomeness that this man truly was. He truly was one of a kind. And in another story that really amplifies his, his character, uh, which is reflected in, you know, his seriousness in collecting his hadiths. You know, a great story that, that I think really sticks with me about just how serious he was about collecting hadiths goes like this. On one of his journeys, he was on a boat with other people, and, and it was sort of like a passenger vessel where, you know, there was a variety of people that paid you know, a captain to take them through the sea. And so he was on this ship where there was a bunch of other people. And with him, he had this purse full of, you know, coins and whatnot, like a lot of coins. It was quite a, you know, substantial amount. And so during this journey, he eventually starts talking to this other man. And this other man uh, is just, you know, some random person that he just starts talking to. And just somehow through the conversation, uh, he mentions to the other man, either directly or indirectly, that he has this, you know, purse full of coins. And so the other man, unfortunately, uh, in a, uh, in a, you know, in greed, he, he, this, this, he basically creates this plan to steal the coins from Al-Bukhari. Terrible, terrible thing to do. But nonetheless, the man, uh, you know, again, he decides to do this. And so the plan that the man concocts and what he thinks of is what he starts to do is he goes around the ship and starts yelling and screaming, that someone has stolen his purse of, you know, coins, right? Someone has stolen his purse of, you know, gold coins or whatever. And so he starts making this commotion, trying to act as if the purse that belongs to Al-Bukhari is actually the man's. And so the plan, of course, goes that the, the ship, uh, the crew will decide to say, oh, we'll, we'll make a search, right? We'll search around and find who took the coin, uh, who took the purse. So eventually when they would make that, you know, search, then they'll find it, of course, with Al-Bukhari, and then the plan is that then the man would get it from Al-Bukhari without having to steal it. Unfortunately for the man, Al-Bukhari is, uh, he, he was much wiser than I think the man 
gave him credit for. And so Al-Bukhari very quickly realizes what this man is trying to do when he's running around making the commotion, that he's making, you know, this big scene. And so what does Al-Bukhari do? He does something that I think surprise, will, will surprise you and will surprise and did surprise the man himself. He takes a purse and he just throws it off the ship, throws it into the sea, just drops it all, every coin, the whole purse, every single part of it into the sea. So eventually, the ship's crew, they start to do a search, of course. Do they find anything? No, because Al-Bukhari already threw the coins into the sea. And so the man is shocked, right? The, the man who's trying to steal the coins from Al-Bukhari, he's shocked. He, he eventually actually walks up to Al-Bukhari and says, you know, what happened? I, I thought the, the coin purse, you know, what happened to your coin purse? And so eventually Al-Bukhari says to him, I, I threw it overboard. I, I threw it into the sea and, and I didn't bother to even keep any bit of the coins. And so the man is shocked. He's like, you threw away all those coins. That's so much, you know, it was so much wealth. It was a lot of coins. It was a lot of money. And he looks at him and says, why would you do that? And he goes, and Al-Bukhari responds by saying, I'm Al-Bukhari. I'm a reciter of hadiths. Uh, and my, you know, my character is important. People need to be able to trust, essentially, uh, what my character is. And, and something like this would ruin that because it would be something that people could come back on and say, you know, he stole coins from someone else. And, and of course, I, I'm paraphrasing here. Those were not the exact words that Al-Bukhari said. But essentially, his point was that if I am to be a reciter of hadiths, people need to, be tr people need to trust me no matter what. People need to be able to look at my hadiths and say, this man in every instance of life was trustworthy. And just because of that, because of how much he wanted people to trust his hadiths, because of how much he knew the importance of having a trustworthy narration in hadiths where he threw out all his gold coins, didn't even hesitate, did not hesitate, just threw them all out. Because that's how important it was to him to make sure that people were able to trust his hadiths. And of course, during this time, he is writing Sahih al-Bukhari, so he knows how important it is for that book, Sahih al-Bukhari, to be trustworthy as well. Because you know for a fact there would be people that would find the story if, you know, if it was, you know, if he didn't throw out the coins, people would find the story and say, oh, well, you can't trust him. There was this one moment where he stole coins. People would use that against him, and he knew it. And he didn't care because he didn't care about the coins. He just threw them all out. And instead, he worried more about the hadiths. But Sahih al-Bukhari, he cared more about that than he cared about even the coins that he had. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I think that's just, that's, that's so amazing to, to, to you know, learn about. To, the, that, that ha that's how strong his character really was. It's amazing. I, I, I always... I always am amazed at, at listening to this story because I've listened to it multiple times and it's amazing each and every time because of just how dedicated he truly was to ensuring that, you know, his, uh, that his, his reputation wouldn't be destroyed and, and in the process, his recitation of hadiths wouldn't be destroyed either. Unfortunately, however, for all the good things that... Al-Bukhari was doing for the Muslim world, there were still people who were jealous of his influence within the Muslim world. And unfortunately, and this is maybe the most unfortunate part of all of this, there were in fact some other scholars who turned against him, people who didn't like the fact that he was so influential with Muslims, that he was so well-liked amongst the Muslim community. And so uh, I don't want to get too much into this because uh, it's somewhat sad, uh, but also I don't want to, you know, focus on the people who stood against him. But essentially, he did actually face many, many hardships in the later half of his life. And so he actually moves back to, uh, you know, like Bukhara and the area around it uh, in modern day Uzbekistan, or, you know, he kind of moves back to the Uzbekistan area in his later life. 
but unfortunately he faces a lot of opposition from local scholars who don't like the fact that he was getting all the recognition. And it's unfortunate, but that jealousy really drove them to do terrible things. And one of the things that they did was that they would make up these fatwas that were obviously fake, but they would say Al-Bukhari said it. And they would start passing it around to other people to say, see, look how, you know, how, uh, how you know, stupid Al-Bukhari is. Look at these dumb, you know, fatwas that he keeps issuing out. And look how untrustworthy he is. And in addition, he actually makes enemies with a, a local governor of the area. Because when he actually travels back to uh, Bukhara or, you know, the areas around it, the governor says that, you know, he wants Al-Bukhari to come to his palace and teach him and his children hadiths. To which Al-Bukhari, and, and this is again, you know, a testament to his character, says, no. He says, if you want to learn hadiths, come to the masjid like everyone else. <laughs> he says this to the governor of the area. So you can imagine, he's basically saying this to the most powerful person in the area. He looks at him and he says, you want to learn hadiths? Come here just like everyone else. Because he does not treat the governor any different than he would treat any other human being that would come to him asking for hadiths. He doesn't care. He says, you want to learn hadiths? Come to the masjid. That's where you learn hadiths. You don't learn it in your palace. You learn it at the masjid. The governor is, of course, very angry and also becomes an enemy for al-Bukhari later on and during this, these hardships that he faces in his uh, later years. Uh, and eventually he travels to uh, with some of his other actual relatives. And so like I mentioned before, he still has some family left in Bukhara. And so he goes and actually lives with them. And eventually, through also these hardships as well, he eventually prays to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he is tired of the world. Uh, right? And, and this is sort of paraphrasing as well. But he's eventually, you know, he very much says that, you know, he doesn't want to uh, be part of the world anymore in the sense that he's very tired of all the things that he's had to deal with in the past few years and eventually uh, only wants to experience one last Ramadan. And again, his prayers are, are entirely answered because he, he basically does experience one last Ramadan and on the night of Eid, so basically the night that Ramadan ends and Eid would begin, he is... Uh, he's, you know, he's on a camel or he's getting onto a camel and he's going to travel home and eventually he starts to immediately feel very sick. He starts to feel very sick. He, you know, he starts to feel very nauseous and eventually he actually passes away on that day, on the very last day of Ramadan that year. So his prayer is fully answered uh, because he passes away during that last day of Ramadan, but also the people who, you know, purposely tried to ruin him and tried to, you know, make his life miserable, all of them, all the scholars that badmouthed him, they all were either sick and they, you know, died terrible deaths or they themselves were humiliated. And even the governor, the governor who, you know, uh, who got angry at him and also became opposition to him, that governor was also caught uh, in corruption and so what happens is that governor is eventually humiliated by, you know, the rulers, the, the upper rulers of the land, like the, the, the khalif of the time, uh, and, you know, some of the other uh, leaders in the area. And he's eventually sent to jail and dies in jail as well. And so all the people who bad-mouthed and, you know, uh, just did terrible, you know, astaghfirullah things to al-Bukhari, they're all, all of them, not one of them is spared, all of them are treated badly uh, in their later lives for the things that they did to Al-Bukhari. And so eventually, his janazah is, is held in the city of Bukhara, and it is one of the largest that's ever occurred in the area, because the people of Bukhara, and since his name is Al-Bukhari, they wanted to honor him one last time, the entire city of Bukhara, Imagine that an entire city came together. They stopped everything they were doing for the one man so they could honor him and his legacy. That's, that's what he meant to the city of Bukhara. That's what he meant to the people 
of Bukhara. That's how high in regard they held Al-Bukhari. He not only took the name of their city, but he represented them and they honored him in that final moment. They honored him before they finally buried him. And I think really, I want to take a second here. I want to take a second here uh, because this is, of course, the, the end of his uh, story. And, and of course, I didn't go into every detail, but I want to take a moment here to really say that Al-Bukhari, you know, as much as he's well known in the Muslim world and everyone, you know, knows Sahih Al-Bukhari, I feel like we don't really honor him, uh, you know, for his contributions to the Muslim world. And it's fundamental. Like, I cannot stress this enough. He's fundamental in spreading Islamic knowledge. His book made it easier, a hundred times easier for people to learn about Islam. His book made life easier for so many Muslims. Like He died in, I, I think it was around 800 AD or something. It was around, I believe it was around the uh, 9th century. So he dies in the 9th century. We are living in the 21st century. All the centuries from the 9th to the 21st, people have relied on Al-Bukhari's book. That's how amazing it is. That many generations of Muslims have relied on this man's book because it was just so verifiable and is so uh, you know trustworthy, but also it, it was a you know a a clear and accurate source for information. Like imagine how many rewards he's getting. Like we all know that you know when you teach something about Islam to someone else and they do that or you know they uh, increase their faith, etc., etc., you gain the rewards, right? Just the same thing, like, when you build a masjid or, you know, you make a donation, you gain the rewards of that. Just imagine how many rewards, alhamdulillah, just imagine how many rewards he must be picking up. Because from the 9th century to the 21st, people have been relying on his book. And to an extension, and to a, a bigger extension, uh, and to an extension, you know, I think this is also part of the rewards. But think about his mother. I mean, his mother, who prayed and prayed and prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to cure her son, and is the one who teaches al-Bukhari everything he knows about, you know, Islam, and everything that he knows, who, you know, stays with him up all night, who memorizes the things with him, who teaches it to him when he was blind, and his brother as well, who I'm sure helped as well. Like his family must also be gaining the rewards of what Al-Bukhari accomplished. And his mother particularly, because she is the reason, her prayer is the reason why he got his eyesight back. And, and that truly is amazing when you think about his legacy in that way. right? He single-handedly made it easier for every Muslim to gain knowledge and to trust what they're learning. There must have been so many disputes or issues that were resolved because they had a copy of Sahih al-Bukhari. Oh, let's just check out. What does Sahih al-Bukhari say? What hadith covers this? What does the hadith, what do the hadith say? Has this happened before? What does the previous you know, uh, narration say? And they can resolve it because there's a, a book of hadith that covers it. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing, really. You know, all the, the da'wah that must have also been given because of the hadiths that he collected as well. You know, his hadiths about, you know, the, the character of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, or even the other companions as well, right? And their level of iman as well. All of that comes back to Al-Bukhari because he collected it all and put it together. Like, I feel like I can't stop talking about this because there's so many, you know, great things that must have been accomplished because of Sahih Al-Bukhari. That's... It's just part of his legacy. And it's something, again, that maybe we don't realize. We don't acknowledge. But we should acknowledge it. We really, really should. If we, as, as modern Muslims, you know, if, if we really want to learn about Islam, and in this again, this is why I wanted to make you know, these Past and Present Heroes episodes, because I think it's so important for us to have a, a good footing and, and understanding the people who came before us, and knowing how they have impacted our lives 
and knowing just what kind of impact they've had and the positive influences they've had. Because, again, I feel as if Muslims don't really know the heroes within their own communities. They don't really know the people who benefited this ummah. And it's about time that we do. And I hope that throughout this episode, it was uh, a beneficial for you in, in learning about Al-Bukhari. And as well as, I would encourage you to go listen to the full two-hour lecture by Umar Suleiman, because they're both very, very uh, important to know. It's, it's an important part of Al-Bukhari's legacy to us. And I think it's about time that we honor him properly, not just by rec- reciting or knowing Sahih al-Bukhari, but also acknowledging his significant impact on the Muslim world. And so here is where I think is an excellent point to end today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know I myself really enjoy learning about Al-Bukhari's story. It's a phenomenal story, and it really is just remarkable to, to read about. Again, I cannot stress enough to go learn more about this man because he truly, truly was amazing uh, to read about and learn about. But again, I do hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I hope it was beneficial. Uh, and also, if you guys did enjoy today's episode, please do remember to leave a rating and a review uh, and wherever uh, you know podcast your or podcast host that you're listening to this from if it's apple podcast google podcast stitcher or spotify whatever you know please do remember to leave a review it really helps me uh, kind of learn more about uh, what uh, i need to improve on or what you guys enjoyed uh, and also remember to leave a five-star review uh, as well uh, in addition i also do have my social media accounts uh, you can reach me at both instagram and on Twitter at MIB Podcast. So that's at M-Y-B Podcast. It's just Muslims in Your Backyard acronym. So M-I-Y-B Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, if you guys want, please tweet at me uh, what you enjoyed about today's episode uh, or what uh, you found curious about today's episode, and I'd be happy to reply. So please don't remember, uh, do remember, sorry, not don't remember, do remember uh, to go find me on social media. I post a lot of things on both Instagram and Twitter. And also, I just love to interact with you guys. If you guys are willing to chat, I'd love to chat with you guys on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, that'd be, uh, I think that'd be, that'd be great. It'd be also great to, you know, chat with people who uh, listen to the show so that I can know again uh, what, you know, I, I should maybe improve on. I'd love to get, uh, you know, some feedback and whatnot so that I just know, you know, what things I could do to make a better podcast experience for you guys. Uh, but again, other than that, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support. Uh, hopefully you guys did enjoy today's episode. And also again, again, you know, Ramadan Mubarak, I hope inshallah that we all have uh, a, a a wonderful and, and blessed Ramadan that we're all able to, uh, you know, inshallah, you know, accomplish uh, Ramadan goals, which is something that I will actually be posting on because I, I am going to try and set some Ramadan goals that I, I hope to at least accomplish. Uh, but hopefully, inshallah, we're all able to have a blessed month of Ramadan and inshallah, we're all able to have a wonderful Eid uh, and that there will be no, inshallah, again, inshallah, really inshallah for this one, but hopefully, inshallah, no COVID restrictions for Eid or for Ramadan. Hopefully, inshallah, again. I, I keep saying inshallah a lot because I, I really, really don't want to go through it again. And I'm sure you don't either. I'm sure uh, we'd rather just have a, a normal uh, Ramadan or Eid. And uh, I'm just rambling at this point, but really, again, uh, hopefully, you know, uh, everything is uh, as, as, as normal as it can be. But other than that, uh, inshallah and alafis, we'll move again. <laughs>